0: Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the Foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. ReThreaded offers hope and a fresh start to survivors of human trafficking right here in Jacksonville. None of us should be defined by the worst things that happen to us. Learn more about how you can unlock the potential of survivors At rethreaded.com and by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com.
1: Hi. I'm Dr. Joe Servan, a practicing neurologist and professor of healthcare science. This is what's health got to do with it, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, it's our monthly medical roundtable. Then our experts answer your questions. But first, in health headlines, COVID leads the news. Americans who test positive for the coronavirus no longer need to routinely stay at home from work and school for five days under new guidance planned by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The agency is loosening its COVID isolation recommendations for the first time since 2021 to align it with guidance on how to avoid transmitting flu and RSV, according to four agency officials and an expert familiar with those discussions. Meanwhile, on to another infectious bug, total syphilis cases surged to over 207,000 in 2022, marking a 17% increase over the previous year and an alarming 80% spike since 2018, also according to the CDC. Experts link this rise to factors such as drug use and declining condom use, particularly among heterosexuals. The increase in congenital syphilis cases, despite being preventable, is raising concerns among health officials. Meanwhile, in two British cities, Vending machines now offer free self-test kits for sexually transmitted diseases, aiming to overcome testing obstacles and reduce the stigma associated with clinic visits. These kits include tests for HIV, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis, providing accessible testing options. In other news, research suggests a probable explanation for why more women than men suffer from autoimmune diseases. Liver disease mortality is on the rise due to increased heavy drinking during the pandemic. The CDC is investigating a gastrointestinal illness outbreak on a luxury cruise ship. Additionally, a study finds that most weight loss drugs are linked to a lower likelihood of depression and anxiety diagnoses. Lastly, popular musical artists are helping to manage the epidemic of mental health issues through their very personal songs. Those are your monthly health headlines. Joining us to talk about these are our A-team of doctors. We have Dr. Sarah Bowden. She is a board-certified anesthesiologist, a board diplomat of the American Board of Obesity Medicine, and we are delighted to have her come back and join us again. Welcome, Dr. Bowden.
2: Thank you so much for having me again.
1: It's a pleasure. We also have Dr. Daker Knight. He is a practicing internist at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, and director of the Ellers danlos Clinic at Mayo Clinic in Florida as well. Dr. Knight, welcome as always.
3: Thank you so much. So glad to join today.
1: We're so glad to have you back. And, of course, Chad Nielsen, our person for infectious diseases. He is the director of infection prevention at University of Florida Jacksonville and the director of accreditation for infection prevention there as well. Uh, Chad, it's always a pleasure to welcome you to our show.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: We're going to start with you, Chad, because uh, we've got two bugs that are leading our health headlines that we need some answers about. First, I'll start off with what I had just recently mentioned. The CDC is issuing new guidelines for COVID. No more five-day stay-at-home if you test positive. More news from them have to do with a very different infection, that's syphilis, with those cases climbing in 2022 in every age group, representing a 17% increase over the previous year's record-setting rate and an 80% spike since 2018. Chad, so much to unpack there. Let's first start out with the COVID advice, since this is uh, somewhat of a breaking uh, news uh, by the time that we're talking about this. What can you tell us about the new COVID advice should someone test positive What should we be doing uh, according to what's planned by the CDC?
4: Yeah, and so this is really hot off the press. And although it hasn't officially been signed off yet, that guidance uh, is likely to change from from the CDC that uh, the five-day rule of isolation uh, can be moved to uh, isolate until you are fever-free for 24 hours and your symptoms are improving. So this is obviously very different uh, and it's in response to just basically a better understanding of the risk the virus poses to individuals and the evolution of the virus itself. Uh, The CDC has held meetings with many experts across the United States and Europe and other places Uh, Do all agree that most of the U.S. population now has some level of immunity against COVID-19, either through vaccination or through infection. And it makes sense at this time to align the isolation recommendations with that of other respiratory illnesses like the RSV uh, or flu
1: virus. What should someone do in the meantime before this is formally approved if you have a positive COVID test? uh what which advice uh, stay at home for 5 days and call the employer or this new advice 24 hours of symptom freedom before you can go back to work yeah so
4: i'll probably make the hr lawyers happy when i say follow <laughs> your company's policy or guidelines that are already in place most uh organizations whether that's hospitals schools uh, or or other businesses have policies in place that dictate how you should treat uh, your uh, respiratory illness, whether it's COVID or flu. So follow those guidelines first. If you're uh, lucky enough to not have HR over you, uh, then I would say follow what we do for other recommendations like flu or RSV in that you should really isolate until you are fever-free and uh, your symptoms are either on the decline or gone.
1: One more question on COVID. If someone belongs to that group of immunosuppressed Or, you know, there's some, you know, they have other ongoing chronic conditions. Does this change for them, too?
4: Well, that's a little bit more unclear. So the CDC and and most health authorities have always held that those who are immunosuppressed have different, uh, different recommendations because their immune systems aren't as strong. Uh, and they could actually be shedding virus for longer. So uh, the CDC has not addressed what it looks like and they're changing recommendations for those who are immunosuppressed. So I would say for those individuals, stick to what uh, the policies and what those recommendations have been up to this point. And we'll wait to see if the CDC addresses it specifically in response to their ending of the five-day isolation rule for others.
1: Chad, I'm going to move to the other topic that the CDC has been addressing a lot, and that is uh, syphilis numbers. Uh, I'm just curious: are these numbers do they are, do they make sense from what you're hearing, what's happening locally here in Jacksonville or in Florida in general? Is are we seeing these numbers everywhere?
4: Yes, absolutely. In fact, Duval County specifically has been outpacing all other Florida counties and the state averages for not only syphilis, but also gonorrhea and chlamydia. Uh, Even more worrisome is that the congenital syphilis rate, which you've talked about, that rate here in Duval County has actually been double the state measured rate over the last two to three years. So uh, syphilis is very much a problem here in in Jacksonville, uh, in addition to these other STDs.
1: Just remind everyone out there, how treatable are these conditions, particularly syphilis?
4: Well, all of these STDs, chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis are treatable with fairly routine antibiotics. Um, The key to not only stopping the spread of these, but having a positive outcome for the patients is testing as soon as possible and getting that treatment. Um, So I think that's why you're seeing some cities move to vending machines and other novel programs to get not only tests out, but also uh, to uh, involve treatment options for these routine antibiotics. So most of these treatments and and antibiotics are often given either free via insurance or through uh, federal or local health department programs. So it's extremely important that... If a person knows they're positive or showing symptoms, they get tested and seek that treatment, which is very routine and effective.
1: Very last question, what's the most common symptom that someone should watch out for uh, if they have a concern about the STD?
4: Yeah, so the symptoms across STDs can vary slightly depending on which specific one you have. But in general, uh, most people, uh, male and female, will experience some kind of painful urination abnormal discharge, pain, sensitivity in their lower abdominal region, any of those signs or symptoms should warrant getting tested. If it's syphilis, uh, depending on what stage it could be in, syphilis has multiple stages, it could actually look like a uh, flu-like illness, fever, aches, body pains, but you're also gonna show signs of ulcers or a rash Uh, down in in your lower abdominal region. And so um, if you're having pain, urination, you're having discharge, those are pretty telltale signs that something's going on that you need to get checked out for.
1: Let's move to another topic, and that has to do with autoimmune diseases. Uh, An international team led by scientists at Stanford has discovered a probable explanation for a decades-old biological mystery. Why do more women than men have autoimmune diseases like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis? Women account for almost 80% of people afflicted with autoimmune diseases, a collection of more than 100 ailments that burden almost 50 million Americans. In simple terms, these illnesses manipulate the body's immune system to attack healthy tissue. In this recently published paper in the journal Cell, Researchers present new evidence that a molecule called AXIST, pronounced like the word "exist," is found only in women and is a major culprit in these diseases. Dr. Knight, I know I mentioned it briefly, but just remind us all, what are those autoimmune diseases?
3: Yeah, autoimmune diseases, I pose quite a burden to the health of so many people and so many Americans. You, you mentioned there's a very large number. I mean, I think it's, you know, right after heart disease and cancer, it's number three. So well, uh, the autoimmune diseases in in simplest terms, I mean, it's a simple question. So I'll try to keep the answer as simple as possible, too, <laughs> that the immune system that we have in our bodies protects us against bacteria and viruses. So there's a collection of cells that work together to act as a barrier to anything that could harm us. An autoimmune disease is when that protection, that immune system, it turns on the body itself by mistake, and it can damage organs and tissue throughout the body in that way.
1: Does this mean, this finding, that men don't get them? Autoimmune diseases? Well, they
3: certainly don't get them as as much as women. And this is a a very, very interesting field of research uh, because there's a lot of things that tie into this. Uh, So uh, we know there's uh, any number of other conditions where there are clear sex differences. Uh, autoimmune is is a big one and there is a big sex difference. It's certainly men can get these though. If we're, if we're talking about um, you know, women account for over three quarters of our patients uh, with autoimmune diseases, while well, there's still a sizable portion when we're talking about the, the numbers altogether, the sheer numbers, there's, there's still a sizable portion of men who did get it. Uh, but the study you referenced there is, is some of the very interesting research that's trying to dig in a little bit deeper of why this, why this is the case. And in some ways we do know from other infectious diseases, there may there may be in, in protection of having a very active immune system. So maybe when we are talking about COVID earlier too, maybe this is some of the reasons why men had poor outcomes yeah. um, from COVID and higher mortality. Uh, but there's a lot of you know, pieces that we can connect together. And that, that research is so important for that reason.
1: Dr. Knight, if someone thinks they have an autoimmune disease, and, and I know a lot of people often wonder about it, especially post-COVID and things of that sort, What's the best advice for people who think they may have it? What, what, how can they best get help, in your opinion?
3: Yeah, well, to go back, I guess, from a very starting point, like, what are the signs and symptoms of autoimmune disease? Well, that's that's difficult. That's hard to say because it can. There, you know, you mentioned in almost hundreds of different types of autoimmune diseases. They can affect just about any place in the body, from the hair to autoimmune diseases that affect the hair loss and even skin to internal organs and things like that. So usually you, you start with your primary care as you do with any uh, any issues that seem to be new or concerning or, or longer lasting. And uh, it would be just persistent symptoms of any area or of the body of concern. So you, you start with a primary care doctor and they can go through and talk about you know the duration of symptoms and and see the timing, see if there's relationship to maybe environmental exposures, sometimes allergic you know, conditions overlap or, or look like autoimmune conditions as well but we know for example like type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune condition so it doesn't necessarily have to be skin or hair it could be just you know blood sugar right. uh, control so there's a, a lot of work that the primary care would do on to try to get to the bottom of it they might do some blood tests and urine tests and things like that it also helps though for anyone who has this as a concern on their mind to go back through their family history as well and see if there are other family members who might have been affected, because we do know that those patients are a little bit higher risk. Uh, and then think about their symptoms and duration, any exposures to, uh, you know, chemicals and, and things like that. Um, we do know that also infections uh, are a higher rate. You mentioned post-COVID, there, there might be a higher rate of autoimmune conditions that can come from infectious causes from the beginning. So if your primary care can at least get started on, on the uh, ground of where it's going to be investigated. A rheumatologist is a specialist who focuses on autoimmune diseases. So they might consider a rheumatology referral for you after they've done the initial assessment.
1: Great advice. And to all of our listeners out there, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do with It on WJCT News 899. I'm Dr. Joe Servin. And if you're just joining us, it's our monthly medical roundtable and we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tag me on X H. A. Servin, Let's go to yet another topic, and that has to do with liver diseases. Evidently, mortality from liver diseases is climbing nationwide, hitting nearly 57,000 deaths in 2021, according to the CDC as well. Researchers have attributed the rise to increased heavy drinking during the pandemic, especially among young people. Dr. Bowden Does this information, does it surprise you? Does it strike you as funny or different? Or how do you track with it?
2: Uh, Yes, it does surprise me because that increase that you mentioned, um, the mortality rate up to 57,000 in 2021 is up from about 44,000 in 2019. So that's an increase of about 33% in two years. That's a huge, huge increase in a very short period of time. Um, So, yes, the the magnitude of the increase surprises me. Um, And as you mentioned, uh, researchers with the CDC and and many other institutions are attributing most of that increase due to an increase in alcohol-related liver disease uh, related to the pandemic.
1: Does this mean a lot of liver transplantations down the road, uh, or at least the hope of it? it? Because there's not a lot of treatment, I imagine.
2: That's right. Unfortunately, once alcohol-associated liver disease has become close to end stage, the point of cirrhosis, or even really before, there's really no good treatment for it. It's not like you can take a pill and treat it, unlike um, the viral hepatitis, which the tiny, tiny silver lining in this data is that viral hepatitis has decreased a lot, and it is no longer a huge cause uh, for need for liver transplantation. That is correct. So liver transplantations did increase markedly during the pandemic, about 50%. um, And liver transplants are still going up. We had a a peak number of liver transplants in 2023. There were about 10,000 liver transplantations performed in the United States, which was up by about, I believe is up by about 12% over 2022. So that's a big increase. Um, Bad news is there's still 10,000 people right now on the liver transplantation. List Um, so we're we're really straining our um, you know the the number of organs available the number of donors available and the infrastructure to perform liver transplants is very expensive and roughly ten percent of people on the list die every year while they're waiting for a transplantable organ so it's a it's a really difficult and very expensive problem we're losing a lot of lives to alcohol associated liver disease
1: which brings me to the final question what is your best advice Regarding alcohol consumption, can you remind listeners what is acceptable?
2: Yes, absolutely. So it's it, you know starting with uh, personal awareness of alcohol consumption. Um, anyone who is a heavy user of alcohol, if you drink more than a moderate amount of alcohol, or if you have known alcohol use disorder, you need to be aware that your risk for end stage liver disease or any liver disease is increased. Um, so we have to define what is a moderate amount of alcohol light to moderate alcohol is defined classically in different places as basically no more than one drink per day on average for a woman or two drinks a day for men Um, and you have to define what is a drink so a drink unit is defined classically as a 12 ounce beer Mm -hmm. a five ounce glass of wine or 1.5 ounces of hard liquor um, so, you know, if you go out to dinner and you get a mixed drink, it may be that you're getting a couple of units of alcohol in one drink, like a martini. Martini's got more than once. So you need to be aware of how many drinks you're drinking per week. Um, the other thing that we really need to focus on in the healthcare community is performing more widespread screening. Every adult in the United States, and probably most adolescents as well, need to be screened every year for alcohol use disorder. And there are some very easy-to-use, validated screening tools that can be used. Um, They're just not being used widely enough. And then people who do screen positive should be offered counseling and help.
1: Let's move to another topic, and here's one that, boy, this sounds familiar, Uh, and this has to do with a GI bug on a cruise ship. The CDC recently uh, made a headline as it was investigating an outbreak on a luxury cruise ship after more than 150 people reported symptoms of gastrointestinal illness, including diarrhea and vomiting. The ship, the Queen Victoria, which is operated by the Cunard Line, left England on January 11th on a 107-night cruise that had stops in Florida, San Francisco, and finally ending in Honolulu. The CDC said that as of... Early February, 129 passengers and 25 crew members had reported being ill on the ship. It also said that 1,800 passengers or about 1,800 passengers and 967 crew members were aboard at the time of the outbreak. The cause is unknown. Uh, Chad, this sounds so familiar uh, that I felt like it was deja vu and I'm reading it. Just Uh, just two simple questions on this. First is what are the common GI bugs often reported on cruise ships uh, to start with?
4: Yeah. So I'll give you the most common, which is norovirus. Norovirus accounts for about 90% of all gastroenteritis cases on cruise ships, uh, according to a lot of different resources. Uh, So the reason is because norovirus is extremely contagious uh, as it's thought to be airborne. And so, uh, combine a very contagious airborne disease like COVID or norovirus with, uh, close quarters and a lot of people, uh, that can't get out into fresh air and and you've got a recipe for disaster.
1: What's the best advice to those people who absolutely love cruises? Uh, how do you prevent this? Uh, if you happen to be, uh, on a cruise ship when something like this, an outbreak occurs. What's your best advice?
4: Yeah, so I I say this as somebody who likes going on cruises myself. Uh, For anyone who's been on on any number of uh, family friendly cruises, it's a great uh, rejoice for parents that we get to drop our kids off at a daycare and they have fun. So (laughs) (laughs) so I speak from a very personal perspective. Um, The good news is that cruise ship companies have very robust public health programs on board. Uh, to prevent uh, GI illnesses amongst the passengers. Uh, And in fact, the rates of GI illnesses on cruise ships have actually been in decline over the last 15 or 16 years as more modern public health methods uh, and staffing have become available on those ships. Uh, but the number one thing everyone can do to decrease your chances of getting sick as a passenger is to simply perform hand hygiene before eating, drinking, and really after you know using or touching any big community touch points on the ship. So what I mean by hand hygiene is hand sanitizer, soap and water, uh, specifically before eating or drinking, touching your face, things like that. Uh, if a case has been found on board, you can expect the ship to take extra measures such as uh, more in-depth cleaning more um, timeliness of cleaning so if they would only clean your cabin once a day they might start cleaning it twice or three times they'll be cleaning public areas more frequently they will respond to this in the best ways that, that public health knows how uh, but uh, anyone who who's Also, crews before knows that they're very fastidious about hand washing, specifically in their dining areas. But I do think hand hygiene uh, is the best thing you can do to keep yourself safe
1: on board. Thanks so much for that. And we're going to pivot to yet another topic. And this one is one that is often in the headlines, and that has to do with weight loss drugs. Interestingly, most weight loss drugs that are making headlines have been linked to a lower likelihood of depression and anxiety diagnoses. This is according to research published by Epic Research. The researchers looked at over 3 million diabetic patients and nearly 1 million non-diabetic patients taking gel P1 medications. That's the class of drugs that represent popular brands such as Ozempic, Wigovi, Zepbound, and Mongero in the study that was published recently. Diabetic patients taking semaglutide were 45% less likely to be diagnosed with depression and 44% likely to be diagnosed with anxiety, according to the study. The results come weeks after a preliminary review by the FDA found no evidence linking weight loss drugs to suicidal thoughts. Dr. Bowden, as uh, our our diplomat for an obesity medicine, Tell us a little bit about these weight loss drugs first, just so that listeners get a good vibe or understanding of of the drugs that we're talking about.
2: Okay, sure. Um, If you're specifically talking about the GLP-1s, those are certainly the newest weight loss drugs that are getting so much attention in the news, and they are the ones that were specifically studied in this uh, EPIC research study that you're mentioning. Um, they both work through a similar mechanism um, through the gl- uh, gl- glucagon-like peptide type 1 agonism. They, they, it mimics a hormone that's made by our small intestines in response to eating. Uh, semaglutide and terzepatide are the two uh, medications that you mentioned. Terzepatide has an additional mechanism of action I won't go into, but uh, so they're, but they're similar. They're in the same class. This type of medication has actually been out for almost 20 years now. The first uh, version of that drug was Exenatide, which came out in 2005 to treat diabetes type two. Uh, so they've been around for a long time, but these two newer medications um, have been out for a shorter period of time and they're more, they seem to more, be more potent. And they're so, certainly more potent in terms of weight loss. And, and in the obesity medicine community, we call them the highly effective anti, anti-obesity medications. Uh, the way they work primarily for work weight loss is by slowing down how fast food transition transits from your stomach through your intestines. So you feel full longer it increases that feeling of fullness. And it also decreases appetite at the brain and the, at the level of the hypothalamus.
1: What do you make of these results? I mean, cause this is, this is suggesting uh, that these drugs, not only are they making you lose weight, but they're, they're antidepressants and anti-anxiety drugs, uh, and so I, I guess my my question is: Is it the drug, or is it that the, when I lose the weight, my depression and anxiety improves? Uh, what, what what do you make of it?
2: Well, that is going to be the million-dollar question. We don't know that yet, um, and there's certainly been a lot of other things besides depression and anxiety that seem to be seem to get better when patients take these drugs for for longer term. This study that you mentioned out of Epic Research looked at only those two drugs, semaglutide and terzepatide. Um, The benefit of this research group is that they have access to a huge, huge data set. As you mentioned, they looked at 3 million diabetic patients and 1 million non-diabetic patients, and they had a control group. Um, It wasn't performed in a classic peer-reviewed research type of manner, Um, and so this is a good kind of retrospective study looking at this large number of data. There's going to be need to be a lot of follow-up, but the good news is looking at that really big data set, they saw really, really stark data that um, patients on these drugs have much, much less depression and anxiety than, than uh, comparable counterparts. Uh, so there, Again, there's going to need to be a lot of follow-up, but this is a good start.
1: It's, it's, it's so fascinating how these things interrelate. I've asked you this question before, but I I like for you to kind of answer it one more time. We talk about all the great things uh, with meds, uh, particularly these weight loss drugs. But I'm also a believer that with with all these good things, there's always a side effect. Can you review with us what are the typical reported side effects associated with these classes of meds?
2: Sure. Well, the good news is that they have been studied extensively. Um, They went through a ton of of preclinical research and are are basically safe. There are a couple of contraindications for them, and there are definitely side effects. No, No drugs come without side effects. The good news is that the side effects are usually pretty well tolerated. The main ones for both of these drugs are gastrointestinal side effects, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea, um, and they usually can be pretty well managed by uh, making sure p- patients are started on the correct dose and that the dose is increased gradually um, to the point that the patient can tolerate it and potentially changing the diet slightly, which of course the diet's going to change anyway if, there's an, uh, if they're being used for weight loss uh, and potentially using obesity medicines. And there are some people who can't tolerate them and have to come off of it, but the good news is there are a lot of other anti-obesity medicines to use as well.
1: I appreciate that. We're going to pivot to yet a very different topic. If you're hearing this song, that's one of Taylor Swift's songs, Death by a Thousand Cuts, released in 2019, describing, I guess, one of her painful breakups, to be uh, very fair to her. February made history for Taylor Swift and her historic Grammy wins. Interestingly, in a recently published study surveying college students, students who had a personal connection to the artist or their song noted using the songs to help them deal with their own condition. The author of the study even told the New York Times that albums like Kanye West 2008, 808, and Heartbreak paved the way for a subgenre known as emo rap. On the album... West, who now goes by Yee, chronicled his grief and depression after a breakup and his mother's death. Not only are these songs existing, he said, the difference now is that we're seeing these songs topping the charts. Moreover, Kressevich, the study author, noted references to mental health in the top 25 rap songs over the past 20 years, finding a striking steady increase. It's become really normalized, he said. There's this idea that mental health is being discussed so much publicly that some neuroses, like depression, are almost being romanticized. Dr. Knight, I, I, I don't know where you stand on the Taylor Swift fandom world, and so I, I'll assume that you're in the midst of, of someone who, who enjoys it. But just out of curiosity, what are your thoughts on the idea of pop songs Serving as an entry to psychiatric management.
3: Yeah, well, I think is a fascinating topic. I love the question, and I, I I know, of course, what would a new segment be without Taylor Swift coming up, right? Right. And, uh, as a, a proud girl dad, my seven year old daughter is going to be absolutely thrilled to know that I discussed Taylor Swift today <laughs> at, at work. So, uh, yeah. So, but it it really is interesting, and and all those things that you're pointing out. So, um. You know, thinking about how music and art in general uh, really has, there's this interface with mental health and we think back at the greatest artists and all the you know, kind of turmoil they've gone through, uh, but also what does it mean for just kind of the lay person who's not a celebrity? And uh, my wife and I were watching a show recently, I, I think it's like the greatest night and pop or something on Netflix, yeah. but it, it was great. And there was a piece there. I think it was Harry Belafonte was saying that artists and, and I might mix up the words, but he was getting the point that artists are important to society because it reveals society to it. They reveal society to itself. So it's kind of like a reflection on what society is dealing with. And I'd say there's a very clear picture here. And then there's yeah, you know, there's a mental health crisis that's just pervasive, and some of this related to the pandemic and all the shutdowns and all the things. But Uh, we know that, you know, depression rates have soared, suicide rates have been at this highest and since, you know, for many decades. Um, so as you talk about how it serves as a vehicle to getting awareness and management for psychiatric conditions, it's excellent. Yes. I mean, whatever, whatever we can do to trigger this pathway to getting people the care that they need, then it's absolutely valuable and important to do.
1: Any downsides you see to this, uh, uh, at all, uh, as you, as you kind of consider just kind of this interesting, uh, connection between almost mental health psychiatry and, and top songs.
3: Sure. Yeah. And I, <clears throat> I think that's a good question too, because there is, um, as much as the awareness is being brought about these conditions in in my field of internal medicine and specializing on genetic connective tissue disorders, that there's a lot of unknown that is shared online, that's great, you know, it's kind of sources of education for patients to learn about things, but it's also in in some ways, it it really spells the importance of having a professional evaluation uh, because, you know, what you hear and read online may not be accurate information, um, and and some of the things that you hear are may just be others who are in some ways trying to gain attention, whether they're even just influencers trying to get likes and things like that. We do know, uh, unfortunately, some of the more sad stories gain more attention than the happy stories, uh, which were reverse. Uh, but so yeah, so the downside would be you know catastrophizing some of these. Um, uh, issues. Now, don't want to make light of mental health symptoms and problems because it is a very clear problem that we have to address. Um, But we also don't want uh, people to get stuck into uh, this, you know, pit of despair when there is help that's available, and they should seek help. They should, you know, talk to their uh, loved ones and their doctor primarily, their primary care doctor is an entry point uh, to see what's going on and, and how that help can be arranged.
1: In our last question on this, uh, Doctor Knight, any songs that strike you in this way that really help, uh, in, in, as you see it, that connects this whole world, uh, just as yeah. we've been talking about?
3: Yeah, I didn't expect that question, <laughs> but um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave the Taylor Swift to my daughter and, and to my nieces. Um, but uh, yeah, there's you know there's a, a lot of I think history of music where um, you know this is not a new. It's certainly a big um, and more popular uh, discussion as it is a bigger issue, Uh, but I think back to You know, my, my youth, when there's, you know, things like uh, grunge rock was big on the scene and, and, and Nirvana. And they were, you know, kind of, you know, they're, they're going through their spells. And, um, what was this song that mad world on, on Donnie Darko, I think was written by tears for fears. I mean, could you imagine a better name for a band (laughs) that's, that's spelling out this kind of (laughs) interface of, of mental health and, and music. So, uh, yeah, those are the ones that come to my mind.
1: You brought a smile to my face, even though I'm not sure that's what the song intended. Uh, Yeah, up next, our experts answer your questions, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and this is What's Health Got to Do With It? Our producer, Stacey Bennett, joins us now with questions for our experts from our listeners. Hi, Stacey.
5: Hey, Dr. Joe. How are you?
1: I'm good. It's so good to have you here. What do you have in that mailbag?
5: Well, we have a lot of questions for you today, so let's get started. Uh, Jane from New York City says, what's the difference between chlamydia and syphilis? What proactive measures can individuals take to protect themselves? What if my boyfriend hates condoms?
1: Chad, I'm gonna direct that one to you as our infectious disease expert to help yeah. answer Jane's question.
4: Yes, yeah, so that's a that's a very multi-pronged question. Yes, so, yes, uh, in general, um, the the biggest difference is chlamydia and syphilis are actually two different. Uh, organisms uh, that cause disease. Uh, And and without going into the specifics, uh, the difference in those organisms uh, does matter because of how they're treated as well as what symptoms and sort of the long-term outcomes if left untreated. Um, So the good news is is testing for both of those is readily available at at most clinics or health departments, um, normally free of cost, as is the treatment. So you can get tested and treated for both. Uh, the number one thing anyone can do to to avoid contracting either chlamydia or syphilis or gonorrhea uh, is to use uh, protection uh, during intercourse. And so uh, when I mean protection, condoms uh, are, are the easiest and most likely to be effective in preventing STDs. Uh, if there is uh, reluctance to use that in a, in a partner type relationship, um, there's not a lot of other ways to prevent STDs from transmitting. Um, if somebody is infected and they don't use a condom, it will more than likely trans, uh, transmit to the other uh, partner. So it's very important that uh, if there's a suspicion uh, of an STD present or a confirmed STD present, that uh, treatment is sought immediately and uh, intercourse uh, will need to pause.
1: Stacy, what else do we have?
5: Mike from Los Angeles asks. I've been struggling with obesity for years now, and I'm hesitant about anti-obesity drugs due to potential side effects. Can you shed light on the latest advancements in the field that is not a weight loss drug and their safety profiles?
1: Dr. Bowden, uh, this is interesting. I guess if someone doesn't want to take any of those drugs we were talking about earlier, what are there other advancements?
2: Um, that's a great question, and um, I want to say first off that there's good news that you really don't need to struggle with obesity to struggle with obesity by yourself. And there's a growing group of physicians and other healthcare providers who specialize in treating obesity, and they have specialized knowledge about the disease, how to treat it, and interest in helping you. Um, so you can you can find those physicians. Um, as you mentioned, there are a number of other weight loss drugs, and in addition to the GLP-1 Drugs. They've been around for many years. Some of them have been used successfully for years. For instance, fentramine has been on the market since the 1950s, and that's got a long safety record and a good efficacy record, maybe not quite as effic- efficacious as um, The newer drugs, but there, there are a, a number of different drugs with different side effects profiles that are appropriate for different people in the right context. All of them need to be used in the context of a comprehensive program um, addressing behaviors, addressing nutrition, addressing activity levels and helping people live a healthier lifestyle to address uh, the obesity. No, you certainly don't have to take a medication to achieve weight loss, but for people with longstanding or severe obesity, it is very difficult to achieve uh, sustained weight weight loss without medications. It can be done, but it's difficult.
1: Got it. Stacy. what else uh, in our mailbag?
5: This comes from Sarah in Chicago. Sarah says, I recently learned about alpha-gal syndrome after a tick bite when I was hiking in Wisconsin, and it's been challenging to adjust my diet. What are the latest dietary recommendations for managing this condition, and how can individuals ensure they're not inadvertently consuming trigger foods?
1: Dr. Knight, uh, maybe you could... First of all, just tell us what is alpha-gal syndrome and then answer Sarah's question.
4: Yeah, it's
3: a great question and In really interesting condition, should I say, that is uh, another one of these tick-borne diseases. So it is a, um, a, a caused by a tick bite that it actually uh, had leaves a, this sugar molecule, which the name is alpha-galactose or galactose alpha and the body forms antibodies to this molecule and the problem is that this molecule is also found in mammalian meats too and so what can happen is, is we we're talking earlier in the segment about autoimmune conditions is that the body's immune system turns on it on not on itself in this case but on those uh, antibodies that are formed against uh, the the molecule that it can be found in, in mammalian meats. So what happens is, is it essentially is a, like a delayed allergic reaction. Uh, to eating pork, beef, and things like that. So typical allergy symptoms, it can be rash, it could be, you know, even trouble breathing, wheezing, and things like that. So it can have a lot, lot of problems. And In severe cases, it can cause an anaphylactic reaction that might require epinephrine, emergency room visits. Uh, so it can it can be very uh, difficult condition. Uh, but I, I think the question is good, too, talking about what best can be done once you have this. And you may not know right after a tick bite, there's no, you know, outright sign, uh, but it can be a this delayed allergic reaction after meeting, so eating eating meat. So uh, the best things to avoid is, of course, avoiding all mammalian meats. And this is a time, you know, your, your vegan friend might kind of chuckle and say, I told you so. Right. But, uh, <laughs> you know, other things to think about, though, too, because I think the, the uh, question: It does delve into these other things where there might be some of this uh, reaction, not only from meat, but us other animal products like dairy, cheese, uh, even some gelatins uh, may be known to trigger. And then, and more rare cases, prosthesis, you know, like heart valves that come from um, animal sources too. So that's important to think about as well.
5: This comes from Jason in Miami. I've heard about the potential risks of fibromyalgia medications. Are there any new alternative treatments or therapies on the horizon that could offer relief without significant side effects?
1: Dr. Knight, can you help us out? This fibromyalgia comes up a lot, and I don't know what are the latest treatment therapies if they are out there.
3: Yeah, I agree. It does come up a lot. And it comes up a, a lot in my practice, too. So uh, we have to be on top of our game when it comes to the, the latest and greatest. And I'll tell you one thing. Yeah, medications are there. Uh, they can. Uh, they, there is evidence for benefit in the short term and near term, but they can come with side effects. So if there's anything that we can do that is safer, uh, that may be more readily available, then that's what we want to go to. Uh, And to that end, one of the best things that we've seen for fibromyalgia, now there's, of course, there's all sorts of marketing for supplements and things like that out out there. So be wary of what you see and you hear and you read about and talk to your doctor about it. Uh, But one of the best benefits we've seen for our patients over the long-term, maybe even longer duration than some of these medications, is some of the cognitive behavioral therapy approach with the pain psychology. Uh, department that we have here. So that involves some of this pain neuroscience education. So understanding really what the pain pathways uh, better and how is the pain from fibromyalgia come about? Um, What is, you know, what is it related to and how is it best managed on a day-to-day basis? Uh, And in some ways, pain never, may never be completely resolved, yet we still want to achieve that high quality of life that we can achieve uh, in the right way. So uh, that what I would, is what I would say is probably what you could uh, think about turning to as opposed to medications uh, for good long term benefit as well.
1: Stacy,
5: John from San Antonio asks: As someone who loves to travel, I'm concerned about the potential risks of contracting infectious diseases abroad. What precautions should travelers take to protect themselves, especially in areas with known outbreaks?
1: chad this one is to you uh we all love traveling what's our best advice for john
4: i I think first is doing some good research on where you're going and what the local risks are uh, there's a variety of different ways you can do this um, to see actually the CIA has what's called the world factbook it gives you uh, not only political and and other type of travel information that that you should be aware of but it also talks about health risks for the countries when's their rainy season when's their mosquito season uh, it talks all about that uh, additionally the Cdc and the World health organizations have uh, websites that are that are dedicated to helping travelers find out information about where they're going and so you wanna lean on those dedicated sources of, of correct and sort of official travel guidance. Uh, in addition to those websites, the State Department also has their own uh, sort of world fact book with travel advisories based on health, uh, geopolitical, and other types of, uh, of uh, uh, standards that they're looking at for countries. And then ultimately, if that doesn't meet your needs, none of those websites tell you what you wanna know, you can engage with the Travel Health Clinic.
1: We have time, I believe, for one more question. Stacy, what is that?
4: This
5: comes from Brian in San Francisco. He asks, does alcohol have calories? Do I need to account for it within my weight loss diet? I love drinking a bottle of wine and some cocktails with my girlfriend and friends at dinner. But she points out that it's like having two to three desserts.
1: Oh my God! I want to—I answer this for uh, to Brian and tell him. Oh, I wish it didn't, but uh, Doctor Bowden, I'm going to point this one at you. Uh, tell us about alcohol and how it counts in the calorie world.
2: Oh, would that it would were free <laughs> and did not have any calories. Yes, unfortunately, alcohol does have calories. It has quite a few. Um, Compared to carbohydrates, it actually has even more kilocalories per gram, about seven kilocalories per gram as compared to, for instance, carbohydrates, which have about four kilocalories per gram. And it doesn't mean that calorie per calorie, the nutrients are absorbed or utilized in the same way they're not. Um, Alcohol doesn't really carry any good nutrition with it, unfortunately, either. There's no no, um, minerals or good nutrition that come with alcohol. What it does come with most of the time is a fair amount of either sugars or simple carbohydrates. For instance, if you're drinking beer, it has a lot of carbohydrate in it. If You're drinking mixed drinks that have a lot of sugar in the mixers, you're getting a lot of carbohydrates or s- simple sugars there. Um, and even wine, wine probably has the least sugar, the least carbohydrates of any of them, but they all carry some carbohydrates. The other problem with alcohol, if you're trying to lose weight, is that it lowers your inhibitions and may make you have a harder time making good food choices if you're using alcohol. And it probably also increases appetite generally. So um, if you're trying to lose weight, you need to be very mindful of those effects on your diet and your food choices that alcohol may cause. Um, The good news is that light to moderate alcohol consumption, we talked about earlier as far as what's up, up to one drink a day for women and up to two drinks a day for men, does not appear to be linked with obesity. Uh, But heavy alcohol use is linked with obesity. So if you're trying to lose weight, watch the alcohol very carefully.
1: Great advice. I'm going to let that be our last word. Uh, This has been such a tremendous uh, roundtable. I want to thank you, Dr. Sarah Bowden, uh, you, Dr. Dacre Knight, and uh, you, Chad Nielsen, for all of your advice and uh, all of your terrific answers to the question today. We really appreciate it.
3: Absolutely. Thank Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very Thank much. You bet. We've been talking to Dr. Sarah Bowden. She is a practicing anesthesiologist and a diplomat uh, in uh, obesity medicine. Dr. Dacre Knight, a practicing internist and director of the Eller danlos Clinic at Mayo G- Clinic in Jacksonville. And Chad Nielsen, the director of infection prevention accreditation at the University of Florida in Jacksonville. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckin. Stacey Bennett is our producer. Brady Corum is our director. Next week's program is our Spring 2024 Best Healthcare Books. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at or tag me on X at jcervin. I'm Dr. Joe Servant, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening,
0: and stay in touch. sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com. The American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at americanbrainfoundation.org. And Rethreaded restores choice and breaks the cycle of generational trauma for survivors of human trafficking in Jacksonville, Florida through business. You can help. Learn more about Rethreaded survivor-created goods at the storefront or rethreaded.com/shop.